Hello, and welcome to another episode of Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. What do the American Revolution, the Ford Motor Company, a London Bridge mystery, fish houses along the King's Highway, the Studebakers, the USS Squalus submarine rescue, battling preachers, a vice president of the United States, and lost racetracks have in common? All are part of the hidden history that is the New Hampshire seacoast. Author Terry Nelson joins me today to speak about the hidden history of the area he calls home. Hidden History of the New Hampshire Seacoast is available now. Terry, thanks for joining me. Let's get started talking about your book. Okay. And from the beginning, uh, it, when I was reading the book, I realized you know, it's not a big area, the seacoast of New Hampshire. It's pretty small. It's uh, the, the actual New Hampshire seacoast on the water is only 18 miles. Uh, but where I live in Dover is inland a bit, but it has... Um, there's a big uh, river and estuary coming up this way, so Dover is also a seaport, and so and Durham used to be like a pretty significant seaport because it's on it has access to the ocean, so it sort of expands the area of it that way. But it's 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 a pretty narrow band. I expanded the um, the stories out away a little bit to encompass the two counties that are on the seacoast and they pretty much the seacoast is ill-defined it depends on what you look at but it's it's roughly that area from the the atlantic in about 10 15 20 miles so so i, I you know create stories from that area but there's there's a lot here this is where you know most of new hampshire's early history started anyway so there's a ton of stories here yeah and they that area contributed a lot of soldiers in the beginning of the american revolutionary war and i didn't really uh, realize all that until you, because you, you know, from that area, you know, you hear about, you know, maybe, you know, from New Hampshire, Vermont, you know, Western New York, the Green Mountain Boys. Right. But right. Maybe uh, General Stark. I don't know if he's yeah. the guy that coined the, the phrase "live for your die." But you're right. But there is, yeah, a ton of the soldiers, and you know, a lot of it started in Boston. And New Hampshire was the first state to kind of formally uh, leave, you know, say they were leaving the the uh, the empire, you know, like uh, about a few months before. Um, the uh, formal Declaration of Independence. So, yeah, and so they were in, you know, in, in the story, Henry Dearborn, the guy who became a general, uh, he started drilling his militia three or four years before the war started, just in anticipation of of it happening. So I think they were expecting it, you know, so up and down. But yeah, a lot, a lot of the Revolutionary War fervor was definitely in this area. And you brought up the man, Dearborn, What's his connection to the Ford Motor Company? I mean, I know he didn't have a direct connection, but there is a bit of one. Well, that and that was what that's part of the theme of my my book is as I was developing it is is backstories because I heard about Henry Dearborn just driving through this little town of Nottingham and there's a tiny monument to his march to head down to Lexington and Concord after he heard about the battle and then he became involved in the war and then as I looked into his life. I I realized, you know, I hadn't thought about it because I never heard of him. And then, then the little light bulb went off. Being from Michigan, I obviously knew of Dearborn. And also I've been to Chicago a lot. And there's Dearborn Street, which is the main north-south, um, you know, road in, in Chicago. I, I said, is this the same guy? And it turns out he was. And so it sort of expanded the story from there. Dearborn, Michigan got named after him by a by a soldier, an officer who served under uh, Henry Dearborn in the, Revolution, in the War of 1812. 
and then he was tasked with establishing an arsenal near Detroit, and he named it Dearbornville, and it just became Dearborn. But Henry, in terms of Chicago, he when he was Secretary of War under Jefferson, he was tasked with finding a communications um, outpost for the newly acquired Louisiana Territory, and um, so he commissioned a force to go out there, and they eventually settled on the area that's now Chicago. It had been settled, but it didn't, you know, just a couple fishermen. And because of that, he's been seen as the father of Chicago. There was even a cartoon editorial uh, image of him that used to be used in the in the, like the Chicago Tribune and other papers. Um, father Dearborn, like Henry, like um, Uncle Sam or John Bull. That's so neat. yeah, and that's the, and I learned all that stuff. You know, I had none, of, no idea of any of that stuff. And what was interesting when I met to the people in Nottingham and the Historical Society, because I go to those places a lot for information. They had no idea that Henry Dearborn was the same guy as Dearborn, Michigan, and you know his connection to Chicago. Even though in in Nottingham, especially, he's obviously pretty well known because that's where he's from. So even though he was famous to those folks in town, they had no idea that he was connected to Dearborn, Michigan. So that was kind of an interesting, interesting find. So a lot of the, my stories, I, I try to dig into the backstories of um, you know of the main, uh, like the main title uh, subject. Yeah, and you know, I've said it before on the podcast that local history leads to national history, which can lead to world history. Uh, exactly. So that's just another case of that happening. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, the, the one where I mentioned to you about um, the connection to Australia, they did a, a chapter about town pounds, uh, you, know, you know, animal enclosures, which I'd never heard of because in the Midwest, where I was largely brought up, you know, you, you don't have town pounds because you didn't have common grazing grounds, and so you didn't have the need to pin in um, stray animals or animals that were doing damage to people's crops. Um, but I, the only example I found of how the system worked was a, a newspaper article from 1884 from Tasmania that I found online and talks about the pound keeper. His name is David Haynes. So, you know, in the, the notice just tells about they describe the animal and what the fees would be, why, you know, what the fees would be. Um, to have him released and things like that. But uh, looking into this David Haynes guy from Australia, I found out also that he was um, originally from England. He was convicted of stealing some cloth at age 19, so he was sent to Australia as punishment and ended up staying there. Like, you know, and I think most of us know this uh, story of Australia being a penal colony, but I've never seen an actual example of it happening to somebody and what happened to them, and that sort of informs, you know, modern Australia, because he stayed there, and, you know, he made something of himself, became pound keeper and also the town jailkeeper. And so that's another little backstory where the town pounds of New England led me to, you know, this guy in Australia who, um, you know, went through the system of being penalized and sent to Australia, then rose to some prominence and success. So those are the kind of backstories I really I, I dug up, and I found, you know, interesting as well to support the main story which again was back to this how a town pound how the system worked once the animal was captured what did they do well they issued a notice but that australian one was the only one i could find that was written down yeah and they just didn't keep animals because we think of pounds today we think about you know going to get a dog at a pound or a cat at the pound but they also went and they uh seized animals and property too there'd be two ways if an animal Got cut like got like they had like to think of Boston Common, you know, was the most probably famous town in Common. 
and the animals, people would do in the 1600s and 1700s and up to the 1800s, everybody could freely graze their animals there. They were supposed to be marked in some way with something in their ear or brand or something. But if one strayed and got loose, and I guess hogs were really bad about this, they could do a lot of damage to somebody else's property. So there's, you know, there'd be somebody whose job it was to um, round up the animals, take them to the pound, and then there'd be a fee for any damages done. And it'd also be a fee for the daily uh, upkeep of the animal. And the pound keeper usually kept that. Uh, so sort of like uh, that sort of like it, it happens up here in, in, um, in Manchester. I was talking to a friend about it. If your car is parked during a snow emergency on the street, they will impound it. It's the same idea. And you have to pay to get it out. And so that's a, that's a pretty modern corollary to how the system worked because it, it's still used. Um, the other reason they had town pounds over animals is if you didn't pay your taxes, they could seize your animals. And then you didn't get them back until you paid your taxes. And again, on top of that, the fee for the, for the pound, key for keep, uh, pound fee for keeping the animal for however many days it was. Yeah. And, and there's thought- about... There's about 50 or 60 remnants of, of or maybe complete compounds left in the state because they tended to be on public land and they and they were hard to knock down and they're sort of out in the country areas mostly. So they've been mostly left alone. So there's a lot of them that can be seen. I've never seen one before. I'd never, well, I'd never heard of it before um, until I came out here. And then they're pretty common out here and they're common in England. And that's so part of my book takes us to England a little bit because that's where they began was, uh, you know, in, in England, they town, they call them pounds or sometimes pinfolds. And then the, you know, they brought that tradition over here. Uh, but so I talk a little bit about their, their beginnings in England as well. Yeah. And speaking of England, I kind of want to go back to Lexington and Concord because they would be at the men from New Hampshire, uh, would be at the battle of Breeds Hill and, uh, Bunker Hill, uh, right. maybe more popularly known, but yeah, they got turned around on their way down Lexington Concord. Some of them. Uh, do you think that was an act of espionage? They want well, well, yes, or at least treachery. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's in. in the, I mentioned that, and, and somebody when when they were told that they they got to the staging area in Cambridge, which is about probably ten miles from from uh, Breeds Hill and Bunker Hill. Uh, they you know they went down there to join the Battle of Lexington and Concord, but it was over by the time they got there. But they were asked to stay, but you know it took a while for some of the, as the troops were going down there, the militias, some guy um, identified himself as an officer of the colonists and said, okay, everybody, you can go home. And so some of them did, because they were farmers and they were anxious to get back to their farms. Um, so if, if maybe not espionage, but probably uh, a guy whose loyalty was to uh, the crown and decided he'd sort of mess with him a little bit. So, you know, I don't think it was – sounds to me like it was something that wasn't um, planned by the, the British authorities, but it was just some gentleman who identified with him or, you know, was, was loyalist and thought he would, well, I can find it. I can do a little trick and send these people home. And and then I did, what was funny about it is in the article that I read uh, – the gentleman with the militia who stayed, who reported it, didn't want his commanding officer to, to say, "I'm the." He finally told the guy's name. I don't have it in front of me, but um, but he said, "Don't tell anybody I told you so." Because so obviously, these, you know, they're probably people who were associates of each other or knew each other socially, perhaps. And all of a sudden, they're doing things, you know, because they're taking sides. 
Wow. So that was an interesting little side story, you know, that I bought, thought thought was uh, you know, it's a little insight into how um, you know things worked, you know, the day to day things that might happen in a war, preparing to war when soldiers are out there, especially citizen armies, where you know these guys are farmers one day, then the next day they're marching down to um, you know Boston to to join in the battles. Yeah. Absolutely, citizen soldiers. Uh, another thing I liked about the book, well, you you talked about the London Bridge Causeway, which oh, isn't yeah. the London Bridge we think about, but it was the mystery of it, the importance of it, and the importance of preservation. Uh, can you give us a little bit of rundown about what the London Causeway was, and also uh, why do so many people, including young people, wanted to preserve this part of uh, history in your area? Yeah, well, it was. I was... I was working as a as a special ed consultant to school districts, and one of them was a district called Windham, which is where that is. And I was talking to some administrators, and I just read in the Boston Globe because I'd not heard of this causeway, of the London Bridge Causeway. And I said, "Hey, did you hear about this causeway that's holding up the high school?" And they all kind of rolled their eyes, and said, "You bet we have. You know, it's you know it's going to cost the district a lot of money. It's going to delay the high school." So uh, from from that, and you know, so I learned about it then, and then. I had a different job, so I didn't really find out, find out what happened until um, I started getting into the book, and I realized the causeway was saved, and the high school was indeed delayed, but it's now built. It's a beautiful school, and um, it was it was because um, some town preservationists, and actually this guy who's a local hunter, um, told the the uh, historical society folks, hey, you know, where they want to build a road to the high school, there's there's an old stone structure I think you ought to see. So he took them out there, and they saw it, and they recognized that something significant or could be. So they got the state archaeologists involved, and you know, it was, it was very controversial because it was going to delay the school and cost the town. The town claimed it was going to be a million dollars. I don't think it was that much, but it was still a chunk of change, probably hundreds of thousands to change the plan. But, but it was an interesting um, story to, about the preservation of this of this causeway because there's only four in the state, and this is one of them. And I guess they used to be a little more common. Uh, and it was pretty. It was untouched because it had been sort of, in a way, lost in a road. It was on a road that had been closed. Ill, little used since the 1880s and was closed in the 1930s or 40s. And so it was really out there in the woods and nobody really knew it was there, um, except as Hunter. Uh, and then he told his friends. And so it, it got that battle going. And, and so, and then the other sidelight of it, there's two little backstories to this, is that um, once it was the district acknowledged they had to reroute the access road around it, uh, they started building the high school, and uh, a young man who was a senior at actually Salem High School, because that's why they built the high school, so Windham kids could eventually go there, but he went to Salem High School, but he was a Windham resident. He noticed that around the, the causeway, there was like a like those orange um, fences, plastic fences they, they, put, they throw up, and he said it was become trash-strewn and overgrown, so he made it a legal project to improve it. And, um, and, uh, you know, there's some pictures in the book that shows how much, how much he did improve it. So it was now, you know, you can, um, you can go out and see it and he's got this nice patio and, and, uh, some, uh, benches you can sit on and it's sort of, a, he preserved and helped. He didn't preserve it. The historical society did, but he enhanced and made it, uh, like a pleasant place to visit. So it's, it is actually part of preservation in that, you know, it helps to keep it, important in people's minds and have access to it 
Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Have access to it to be able to go there and visit it instead of instead of it being out sort of in a in a not a field exactly, but in a an area that's not uh, manicured because it's, the high school property is really large. But now it's you know it's open and there's you know you can see it clearly and you can see it from the road and and so it's really you know really a, a good thing um, that he did that as well. That's another sub story in my my book is groups like Eagle Scouts and the DAR how they help um, preserve things and uh, mon- monumentalize things that uh, otherwise might not have happened. But, yeah, because uh, think about how many things we pass maybe on a daily basis that played an important role of history, but now they're just overgrown or forgotten about, but the remnants are still there, like the racetracks. That's the only one in my book that's probably someday going to go away because it is, it's owned by a, a private developed land developer, but it's been for sale but for nine years, so obviously it's, it's not flying off the shelf, but eventually it's going to go. But I had heard that there was a racetrack in Dover, but I couldn't figure out where it could be and i finally asked this this guy who owned an auto shop and he said he told me where it was so um, myself and this uh gentleman named frank kennedy from the summersworth historical society which is a town that summersworth butts up to dover and part of the track is in summersworth we went out to visit it and you know sure enough uh there's not only there's an auto race track which is a, a one-fifth of a mile uh asphalt oval which is really small i mean probably from being south carolina you're pretty familiar with um, you know, auto racing, and mm-hmm. it's, that's a really tiny track. Uh, most ovals around here, the smallest might be a quarter mile. So this is a fifth of a mile, but still it was it was there. Uh, it had been partially plowed because when they closed it in 1965, the town um, didn't want people going out there racing on it still, but it, it's still intact, and so is the most of the one-mile horse race track that was uh, built in the 1850s and was a major horse racing track. Uh, up until the 1930s, um, and then they brought in midget cars and motorcycles and, and things like that. But it's all still intact, and it's it's a fascinating story. And uh, part of my idea behind that was not only to tell the story, but it's a little bit archaeological because it's sort of I mentioned in the book. There's there's a thing an idea called rescue uh, rescue ar- archaeology, which is information extracted from a site before it's going to be developed or destroyed, and uh, eventually that's what's going to happen to this place because, you know, big open flat land like that eventually is going to attract somebody to build something, a big box or something. So I was happy to be able to, um, you know, talk about that. I was able to interview a guy who drove on it. He was 90 at the time and named Nick Zerbinopoulos, but he went by the name of Nick Zip, which is a great name for a race car driver. (laughs) It's just him and his brothers, the Zip brothers. Um, so I was able to interview him, and you know, I, I talk, I write a little bit about his his uh, thoughts of what it was like to be racing on it. That was, you know, that kind of brought you back to those those racing days, you know, back yeah. then. So, yeah, it was it was fascinating, and it's still there. It's it's on private property. I mean, because it's it's posted, but there are access points to it from a park with aren't aren't posted, so you can kind of walk in there and check it out i mean there's not much damage one could do to it but i can see why they don't people don't want people wandering around but yeah hope some you know someday it's going to be gone and so sad. i was yeah it is but you know it's it's, it's dover's going pretty fast and so you know there, there, things like that are going to be snapped up eventually yeah you know i also wonder if nick zip had a list of rules he lived by he called the zip code oh <laughs> 
<laughs> that's a good point. I never thought about. It. When Zip, well, he, he's that's pretty good. I wonder when he when Zip Codes came in. What was that? Probably the 1960s. He probably thought, my God, they stole my name. They probably should have charged the government for uh, you know, for copyright infringement. Yeah. That is, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because it was about the time when he was racing still, or just after when uh, the Zip Codes came in. But I love the name Nib, Nick Zip. Yeah. And I think it's about Nick and I believe it's Charlie was the name the other interesting little coincidence is that um the racetrack was was trotters you know harness racers and um as opposed to thoroughbred racing but um the boston globes uh horse racing um rider who would spend his summers up there at the course in dover his last name was uh was trot and i thought well that's a perfect name for a guy who covers the trotters <laughs> is you know a guy whose last name is trot so you got zip and you got trot uh, that's a track. Yeah, if you ever get any new animals, you got to name them Zip and Trot. That's... Yeah, exactly. That would be. That was, that was a couple of good names. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about somebody. He's a man who is not well known, but should be. Uh, you know, out maybe he's more well known in New Hampshire than the rest uh-huh. of the U.S. Um, he was an indentured servant. He became an abolitionist, a senator, and rose to vice president of the United States. What do you think is Henry Wilson's greatest accomplishment, and how is he remembered in New Hampshire? And then a follow-up is how did he fare in the Grant administration, because there were some scandals that broke out during the Grant administration. Yeah, I I don't know how well he's known in, in this, this state. Maybe, you know, Franklin Pierce is the only New Hampshire president. He's pretty well known, but Henry Wilson, I'm not— Sure, so much. I think folks tend not to know vice presidents as much anyway. And Henry Wilson is the only vice president that was uh, born in New Hampshire. I think his greatest accomplishment, he thought his greatest one, and I agree, was he introduced the bill when he was a senator to abolish slavery in um, in D.C., District of Columbia. And you know that he was an ardent abolitionist. Um, and I think... That, that to me was obviously a pretty significant thing, and I mentioned in my book that when he came to Washington for the first time, I think as a representative, he saw the slaves being sold in, in D.C. and saw slaves working in the field, and he, coming from here, when he was alive, there was no slavery, obviously. There had been in the 1700s, so he was, he was you know, he found it abhorrent, and so he made that one of his life's callings. Um, I don't think, he died during the term, um, so, but anything I read about him um, was uh, didn't mention his being caught up in, in any of, of Grant's scandals because he was in Grant's first term, and so I don't, you know, I, I don't think that in the um, the uh, the guy who the guy who uh, did the wrote the book about him was a, a senator as well. So I I don't know if he wanted not to get into stuff like that, but. I think his story was just a good story of a of a young man who, um, you know, typical, you know, grew up you know, on a farm, a poor farm, and you know, moved. He eventually moved to Massachusetts and um, made good, and then he he got into government. He he grew up. His last name was it's a, one of the interesting stories in the book and a true back back story because I found out about him when I was studying these workers' homes in Durham. Uh, they were homes built for shipbuilders, and they were built on something called Broth Hill. And I looked at an old history book from the 1890s, and the writer said that uh, Broth Hill came from the family name of Colbroth, uh, or Colbrook, and or Col. And so Henry Wilson 
was of that family. Uh, his, he was actually from Farmington, New Hampshire, which is about just 20 miles north, not all that far. But So he was of the family of the name that that hill came up from, that Broth Hill got the name from. And so even though my story starts out about these homes, I thought, well, this is an interesting story. New Hampshire's only vice president, so I, I learned about him, and I learned that he hated his name so much because his father was kind of an idiot, and he, when he turned 18, he changed his name to Henry Wilson and headed in Natick, Massachusetts, and made good. But it's it's a fascinating story, and he, you know, you know, you don't picture somebody who's a vice president, you know, having started out in such humble means as you know, being so poor, and his father was just kind of cruel and shiftless, and uh, apparently he gave him his first two names, Jeremiah Jones, after the names of a neighbor that the father thought would maybe be flattered and somehow give the family money, uh, which didn't happen. So he changed his name to Henry Wilson and, and head out, headed out. But it's it's a great little backstory that uh, you kind of discover. You get into looking into one thing, these homes on Broth Hill in Durham, and you find out about a vice president who changed his name and, you know, and became famous and became influential. Yeah, and he, like you said, he literally came from nothing. There's presidents who claim they came from nothing, but you find out that's, you know, not exactly a true story. I think the poorest president we had was Andrew Johnson, who was born uh, to a tailor, or I don't know if he was born to a tailor, but became a tailor. Uh, so it was neat to actually learn about someone who really achieved an American dream early on. He absolutely did, and he pretty much did it all on his own. He he tried to, when he he was an indentured servant, when, he, when he, that was finished, he Tried to get work in New Hampshire, but he couldn't find any. Um, so he, in the mills, by, the, by then the mills were running pretty strong in New Hampshire. So he just went down to Natick and learned the shoe business and eventually the shoe trade and built a factory. And, you know, he just made it really, really good. But he decided he wanted to serve as well. Um, and the interesting little in that chapter, I talk about him. And he was Republican, served under um, Grant. Uh, the guy who built those homes for the um, shipbuilders was named uh, Joseph Cole, and he was a su- successful businessman as well. And he was an ardent Democrat. So in the same story, I get the two parties, but they were both strongly uh, anti-slavery. And in the Democratic Party, that was a much more divisive thing back then because there were some, some pro-slavery Democrats. But it's interesting that I write about these two guys. One's one generation before the next, but they're, you know, they're different parties, but they're both in common, they're, you know, ardent uh, anti-slavery folks. And so it provides for a kind of a good story and a good good contra- contrast and compare between two men who were successful businessmen and uh, but still patriots, and they served their country. So it was, it was, a, it was an interesting chapter, and it, it all again came out because I drove by these five roughly identical homes uh, on the road to Exeter from here, and I thought, what the heck's going on with that? So I checked into it, and all this flowed out of it. Yeah, and one one more thing I want to talk about, because it was just really interesting. Uh, One of, uh, actually, one of my favorite chapters also in the book uh, proves that differences in beliefs, even in the same faith, can get ugly. Did you Mm -hmm. know about the preacher wars before writing the book? Not at all. (laughs) Not not, not a bit. I, I... I didn't really know much about the uh, history of the religious history in this area in Dover, anyway, in the first place. And um, but I drove by often this site of a um, of where the second meeting house was. Um, it was just built in 1654. The 
Um, and then I learned that around it, there had been fortifications and the earthworks of those fortifications are still there. So that got me into learning, finding about, well, how did this meeting house come about? And then it goes back to 1633 when the Puritans came and, and, um, settled and only about 30 or 40 came up, but in the ensuing nine years, there was five different preachers. There was, uh, a lot of rivalry between preachers and you're right they're they're all, uh, Puritans, or um, which another side story is I never realized that modern-day Congregationalists, which is a pretty open church, mm-hmm. are they're the Puritans, and the Puritans have sort of morphed into the Congregationalists, and that's another little side thing I, I didn't know about. But there was factions within the church because some of some of the Puritans were very strict, and others uh, that came up with the Puritans were not as strict, and I think that's probably where the conflict came from. And I think of it was just Petty, petty rivalries because these two preachers that faced off, one of them carrying a gun, were both Cambridge uh, University in England educated and they, and they important, you know, learned men. And yet somehow they, you know, they came to blows. There's another bit in my story where the guy, when the two parties met for the conflict, uh, another gentleman put a, a tied a Bible to the top of a halberd, which is kind of a, a sword and battle axe combination. I thought, what a, what a great place to put your Bible. Is on, a, is on a weapon of war. So it's, it's funny. I, I, I he got took the picture. sword of the spirit quite literally. Yeah, he did. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess so. He, he, figured, he, he takes the Bible very literally, apparently, that guy, and figures maybe this, the weight of the Bible will help his swinging. But uh, luckily it never came to blows or gunshots. Uh, and then I, I got a picture of one of the, the preachers from a, from, uh, a church in, uh, in Somerset, England, or Devonshire, England. And I, when I finished the book, I wrote, back to the guy to thank him and I, I sent him a copy of the chapter and he I, I I wrote the chapter a little bit tongue in cheek because of the absurdity of, of two men of God facing off like that. And he even got he got that. He said he couldn't believe the absurdity of these you know, of these two college you know, Cambridge educated preachers, men of God, facing off and you know, one guy hit the hat off the other guy and it was it's an amazing story. They both went back to England eventually and uh, you know went on to more success as preachers back there. But that's the other thing I, I didn't realize when I wrote the book and learning, especially about these, these two gentlemen is how common it was for people to come over here for a few years and then go back. I always sort of assumed people came over here and stayed for the most part, but a lot of people came over, did whatever, you know, uh, tried a business, um, tried to spread the religion. That's how the Quakers came over here. And then, but they would go back and they'd have, you know, they'd move on from there. So that was an interesting thing that I didn't know about. And I certainly didn't know about the, this, this little preacher battle down, down on Dover point, you know, as the two factions are, are facing off and, you know, my preacher is better than your preacher, but it was, it was an interesting story. That's for sure. And I was uh, amazed by it. And this is, this is all, New Hampshire was settled, Dover was settled in 1623, that this is all within, you know, 10 or 15 years of, of the settlement of the state, that all this was going on. So uh, the other backstory is, for me, is how quickly people started to move in here as well and populate it. All right, well, I've kept you for a while now, and uh, I, like I said, thanks for talking to me about it. I really, obviously, enjoyed the book. Um, well, I'm glad. And I've enjoyed uh, talking with you about it. I hope you write another one with us so we can do this again. And if Absolutely. You're ever, if you're ever down here in Charleston, uh, let me know. And we'll, uh, I will. We'll Absolutely. go have some fun touring the city. I would love to. I'd love to tour Charleston. 
As always, I want to thank you, the listener, as well for joining me. Remember, you can find Terry's book, The Hidden History of the New Hampshire Seacoast, and other local history books by visiting our website, ArcadiaPublishing.com. Also, stop in and visit your local bookstores. And if they don't carry our books, ask them to. Next week, I will speak to a husband and wife writing team, Patrick and Patricia Mesmer. They will tell us all about pirates, privateers, rum runners, and smugglers. If you would like to contact the podcast to let me know about a subject you're interested in hearing about, you can reach me at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. That's ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com.